My son Emmett is in 10th grade, and right now he's assigned to read Amy Tan's The Joy Luck Club for English class. So I decided that I'd read it too. And this will sound sort of weird, but in spending the past two years researching and writing The Bo Jackson Project, I'd forgotten a bit how joyful it is to just kick back, read a book, and then have someone to chat with. It's even better when it's your own kid, and you can see how he interprets the very words you just absorbed. It reminds me why people still turn to books, and even as mediums change and adjust and come and go, a good book remains a good book. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Justin Tinsley, the culture and sports writer for The Undefeated. This is episode number 236. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right. Well, Justin, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. I'm staring at your very impressive bookshelf behind us. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on, man. It's been a long time coming. I always look at a person's, you know, whatever, LinkedIn page or whatever, and they're pretty much in our profession relatively the same, which is, all right, guy went to college, maybe he went to journalism school, he yeah. interned at this paper, interned at that paper, got a job at a smaller place, got a job at a bigger place, got to the undefeated or ESPN or the athletic or whatever. And right. so I'm expecting that. I'm looking at Justin's resume and I'm expecting <laughs> sort of that. You went to Hampton yep. then you got your master's at Georgetown. Yep. You were a financial representative at Springfield Financial Services. I, I don't even know what that means. You were a proposal uh, writer at EMCOR Government Services. EMCOR mm-hmm. stands for what? I don't even know. I, I can't even remember. This, it was MCOR Government Services. That's what I call it. it. It stood for something, but honestly, I can't tell you what it stands for now. Fair enough. You were a uh, public relations and marketing manager for mm-hmm. Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority. Yep. Senior content editor at Uproxx. And then here you are at The Undefeated. Yeah. What are you doing here? Like, how did this even... Man, I mean, that that's a phenomenal question. And, and I'm so glad we're starting here because thankfully when I have the opportunity to speak to, you know, different classes and I actually spoke at uh, Arizona State's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism back in September and they were asking me about my journey. Like, what papers did you intern for? Like, like who did you work for before you got to ESPN? I'm like, uh, nobody. So when I was at Hampton, my senior year, I was actually the co-sports editor for my school newspaper the Hampton script. So I actually was an editor there. I loved music. I love sports and I loved writing about both in the intersection and just, you know, how those worlds kind of blended together in so many different ways. But honestly, Jeff, at that point in time, man, like I didn't know how to make it into a career. I just didn't. I was like, yeah, that, that seems cool. That would seem fun to do. And so I graduated in 2008. And if you remember, that was like right when the recession hit. It felt like when I graduated in May 2008, there were like 200 jobs for every college graduate, not just every graduate at Hampton University. I'm talking any school in America. You know, I I floated from job to job. And thankfully, in 2009, I started writing with it was a blog at the time. And it was like a, a pop culture related blog called The Smoking Section. I used to read them a lot in college. And for me, they were kind of like my version of of Rolling Stone or like Esquire. But they were just you know, a bunch of people who were, you know, working regular jobs, but also 
love to write about different topics. And so I would read it every day and they had a writer's opening post that they, that, that they submitted. And I was like, you know what, let, let me submit my credentials because at that point I was still, I, I had my own blog at the time and I was writing about, again, sports and music, new albums that came out, new mixtapes that came out, whatever was happening in the world of sports, um, a little bit of politics, you know, so I had enough writing samples to submit. And thankfully they was like, yo, they'll, they'll bring me on board. And from that point on, I really started taking writing and reporting like really seriously, like because in my point in my eyes, I was at the smoking section. Again, that was my Rolling Stone. So I was like, I'm gonna treat it like it's Rolling Stone. Like I'm a I'm a write. I'm gonna keep writing over the course of the years. You read those different jobs that I was at financial advisor at Springleaf that I was basically constructing payday loans for people, which. You know, I I was grateful for the job at the time because it allowed me to just have a paycheck coming in. But it was one of those jobs I really couldn't really couldn't rock with because I didn't like some of the the methods that we use to get people to get payday loans. But again, I was appreciative of that job. I went to proposal writing for the government. And for anybody listening, proposal writing is the polar opposite of what you know, what we do in journalism. It's it's writing 800 page documents for a new filtration system at a military base in somewhere Arizona that I've never heard of. It's not journalism at all. Throughout that entire journey, I kept writing, man. And it's something that I tell people this all the time. I never second guess myself. I never third, I've fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and 10th guess myself. Like, man, is this the right thing? Am I do, am, am I on the right path? So as I jump from job to job, the one thing that remained consistent was that I, I kept writing, I kept freelancing and I kept getting gigs at other places. And it was just one of those things where I was like, you know what? I would come home and I would just write from honestly like nine to three in the morning. So when I went to work, I would have stuff published throughout the day. And I would just tell myself, if I got one opportunity, if I had one chance to really prove myself and just have that, like, yo, if you put me on a platform to showcase what I believe my talents are. I won't let myself down and I won't let whoever put me in that position down. So fast forward to honestly, November, 2014, seven years ago, I'm at Hamptons homecoming. And uh, one of my friends comes up to me. He was like, Justin, do you, I'm a big fan of your work. Do you mind if I introduce you to, to somebody at ESPN? I was like, man, that's how I know you're drunk because you're asking me, can you introduce me to somebody at ESPN? I was like, you better that mutual friend introduced me to somebody who was working with Michael Wilbon at that point, at that point in time, his executive assistant. She also went to Hampton as well. She told me to forward her some of my writing samples. This was November, 2014. And I lied to you not Jeff by January 5th, 2015, the day after Stuart Scott died, I had a one-way flight from Richmond, Virginia to Los Angeles to start my career at ESPN because they just, they liked what I had written in the past and they wanted to take a chance on me. All these years later, here I am. You said you never second guess yourself. And that's sort of a unique trait in a writer because I second guess myself every time I write anything. Oh, no, no, no. I, what I was saying was I didn't just second guess myself. I third, fourth, fifth, sixth, oh, okay. and seventh guess myself. We're like, man, I'm writing all this stuff and I can't get, you know, there, there were so many different outlets that, you know, I, I reached out to, reached out to, to do like freelance pitches and notable publications, especially after I had like a lot of samples under my belt that I think like, all right, I feel comfortable reaching out to these places, but they told me like, no, like your style of writing isn't what we're looking for. And thanks for the great idea. But um, it's just, it's just not what we want at the time. So there'll be plenty of nights where I'm just laying in the bed, looking at the ceiling fan, like, man, am I on the right path? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? Like, 
am I writing in the right way? And I didn't even know what that meant at the time. And thankfully, I just grew so comfortable into my, my writing style and my voice that, you know, I'll never second guess the way that I write, the method that I write and the topics that I write about. But yeah, there was a point in time like 2012, 2013, 2014, where I was just like, I don't know how this is going to work. Is my future in grant writing? Yeah, it, it damn sure wasn't because they they laid me off. There were points in times where I would be at that job and I was supposed to be working on uh, an assignment, but I would low key be writing a story to submit it for a freelance. And they were like, Justin, we need this, you know, we need this assignment done by 1230 and it's 1218 and I just submitted the story and I haven't started my actual work assignment. Honestly, the most important job that I had on my path to ESPN was the last one that you read before then, which was uh, the housing authority in Richmond, Virginia. And I was working in PR and marketing at that point in time. Working there, I was responsible for work, working within the six different housing projects within Richmond, Virginia. And obviously coming up with press releases, doing all that type of stuff. But I, I was also part of the truancy program there, just checking to make sure kids went to school on certain days and I got a chance to really talk to a lot of people who you, you'll never see on the nightly news. I got a chance to really hear their stories and, you know, what they what they experience, whether it be parents or whether it be kids, whether it be guardians or grandparents. I always had a lot of empathy for people, especially, you know, my people, like black people. I always I've always had a, a bunch of empathy for us and understanding that none of our stories are pretty much the same. We all have a unique experience in this world. But it gave me so much more patience, so much more understanding and so much more compassion towards things. Because like when you open that door asking like, hey, is so and so in school today? Like I've seen a bunch of different things when those doors open. And this is what these kids have to live with. These are their lives. It's not just a 45 second story on the news. I told myself, like, whenever whenever I write stories, especially when it, it involves a a truly, truly human component and element to it. Like you have to present it with that compassion. You have to com present it with that nuance because so often both of those things get left out. And we, we see stories from just the 30,000 foot level from which we see them and not understanding like people have to walk in these shoes every day. So while, you know, I was ready to leave that job when I did obviously to go to, to an opportunity like ESPN, I always say I want to take that that love and that compassion and that nuance that I got from that job and talking with those people in those communities and take that with me. When you have a job like that mm -hmm. and then you leave for ESPN, yeah. are there any feelings of I'm not saying there should be, but are there any feelings of guilt that you're leaving this behind and these people who need you and you're helping them to go work for a big media company? You know, there was a little bit, but there was a, a, a gentleman who worked as a, I think, like a custodian at the nearby, like, uh, rec center that was in one of the communities. And we developed uh, a really good relationship. He was a he was an older guy and he had been working within those communities for decades at that point. And, you know, we we it's, we, we always talk sports like he, he, he loved to talk football. He loved to talk baseball. He just loved to talk sports. And he eventually he um, understood what I was doing in terms of journalism and where I wanted to take it. When I told him, I was like, yeah, man, I'm sorry to say that, you know, I won't be here much longer. I, I got an opportunity. I told him what the opportunity was like his eyes lit up. He, like you would have thought that he got the job. And he told me, he was like, don't ever be sorry about an opportunity that you worked for. You, you did what you were supposed to do here. And now, you know, 
life is calling you to go elsewhere and make an impact. We like take the experiences that got you to this point, but never forget the lessons that you learned in them. People don't understand the type of impact that they can have on you just by saying little things like that. That could like change the course of the of the rest of your life. And for me, it did. All right, here's a weird question for you. You write for the undefeated. Yeah. I love your work. I do. I really do. I love the stuff you write. Are the right people reading what you're writing? What I mean is, I feel like there are tons of white people in this country who actually need to read this yeah. and need to understand who do themselves very well by actually reading the undefeated. Yeah. But I don't think they are. And I wonder if you're ever like, I'm just writing for the people who already know how influential DMX is and yeah. what it is to grow up in Hampton and blah, 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 blah. Do you ever feel like the wrong people are reading? Not the wrong people, but I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a phenomenal question, man. And, you know, I'm never disappointed by, of course, the topics that I that I choose to cover or anything like that. But I do wonder. I do wonder sometimes because sometimes I think there, there's a certain segment of society that it's wild how critical race theory, just to mention that it's wild how critical race theory became such a significant factor in so many elections across this country when all critical race theory is literally saying is tell history exactly how it happened exactly how it happened it's not asking you to like bend over backwards and make up just tell it exactly how it happened but yet there's such a part of this country and we know which part of the country i'm talking about there's the conservative right however you want to call it you know this this insular class of majority white folks but there you know there there's people from different segments of the of the population there but it's majority conservative white folks who would who would rather hear history painted in the lens that they're comfortable hearing it as opposed to how it actually happened so like when i write a story about alan iverson it's just even in hampton virginia to this day iverson, iverson is still a polarizing figure yes to to much of the community there he's this beloved um, legendary figure who went on to achieve whatever he did in the NBA, but he's still seen as the guy who started the fight in the bowling alley almost 30 years ago. But like, if you read that story, you understand that like him getting that court named after him, him having that moment is the graduation ceremony. He never got to receive because he was, you know, he was in trouble. He was in jail when that, when, when that point in time of his life came around. So and sometimes I get really great feedback on social media. Every now and then you get the, the person with the 12 numbers in their in their screen name and, and a dog cursing you out or something like that. But it's just I do wonder sometimes, like. Did you did you read it? Do you care to read it? But, but the question is, why are you so scared to hear what the truth actually is? And I don't have an answer to that yet, Jeff. I'm looking for it, but I am i don't have an answer for it. It is actually the weirdest thing ever. Like if you told me tomorrow, Jews did blank, like a hundred years ago, Jews, blah, 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 blah. I'm not taking it personally. I'm just acknowledging the history of it and saying, okay, this happened. We need to understand that this happened. I'm not trying to suppress what my people did. And I right. don't understand why it's so awful to talk about, no one is saying you, buddy, in 2020, blah, blah, blah. We're not saying you need to blank. Just acknowledge that this is a part of American history and it actually needs to be discussed. And I still, for the life of me, cannot understand why it is such a horrible thing to talk about slavery and talk about Jim Crow. Why is that even a bad thing? I don't know. Like these things actually happen. I know. This isn't some like some fairy tale, some gross fairy tale that somebody made. We know these things happen. Like, like there's literally Jeff Davis Highway 
in Virginia. It's one of the most, you know, used highways in Virginia. And who is Jeff Davis? He was the president of the Confederacy, which was in Richmond, Virginia. It doesn't get more Southern. It doesn't get more, honestly, American history history than that. And it's like these things happen. It's not it's not an attack on you. It's not an attack on your curriculum in school. This is it's history. It happened. But why are you so scared of, you know, the kids or, you know, younger generations hearing history exactly how it happened? I look at something like the movie Pocahontas. Like and we see in the movie, in the in the animated version where Pocahontas is, is rescued by this settler who comes over to America and it, and it feels like a romantic love story. I'm like, no, in reality, Pocahontas was like 12. This settler from Europe was like damn near twice her age. You can't beautify everything in history because so much of history is polarizing, is nuanced. Some parts of history is ugly. And if hearing the truth makes you uncomfortable, imagine being the community that had that that truth inflicted on them. The piece we referenced, you wrote in uh, December 5th, 2019, the headline is Alan Iverson returns to his old high school to renew a bond with the 757. I love this piece. Dateline Hampton. Alan Iverson wasn't scheduled to speak Tuesday when Bethel High School renamed its gymnasium and basketball court in his honor. But realistically, the man known locally as Bubba Chuck had to know he wasn't getting out of his former school's airspace without touching his, his people. And as the 2001 NBA MVP and Hall of Famer began to speak, on came those familiar tears and lip quiver and that familiar choppy voice. I'm Virginia, he said. A few seconds later, Iverson tried again. I'm Virginia. Fighting back tears, he continued. It's as simple as that. I loved you all for all these years for supporting me throughout the ups and downs in my life. We, us, we, Virginia, we beautiful, we the best, we the toughest, strongest, and we believe in each other. And I just love y'all. To say the feeling was mutual wouldn't do the moment justice. Iverson is the most interesting athlete, I think, of this generation. Absolutely. Because, because he cries at everything. Absolutely. Like it, it doesn't take it doesn't, it doesn't take long for the waterworks to start. And but the thing is, these aren't performative tears. You oh. know he means them. Like that. So yeah, it, it to be there. I remember because it wasn't like a huge news story. I think it was just really only a news story within maybe Virginia circles and definitely, you know, seven five seven circles. And so when I heard it, I was like, oh, no, this is a big deal. Like, especially if you know his his story, you know, and, and you understand why getting this court, getting this gymnasium named after him is basically his high school graduation that he never got. And so when I pitched it that way to my editors, they were like, oh, yeah, you should definitely go down there and do the story. Obviously, you're familiar with the area. You went to school down there. You have a, a personal connection to the story. So go ahead. And I'm glad I'm glad they gave me, you know, that type of freedom, that type of wherewithal to, to cover the story, basically, basically in any way that I saw fit. And I'm just so happy that they did. And I'm I'm, I'm really pleased about how, how that story came out. He wrote, uh, Iverson technically never finished Bethel High School. He couldn't. Life saw fit otherwise. But if Tuesday proved anything, is that not all graduations come with a diploma? That's a really good line. Um, I appreciate it, man. Yeah, they, they don't. They don't. Was he open to you? I don't know, like, because he's he's a little weird with the media in his life. Um, yeah. Was he open to talking or was he? Was he, was he like, so I, I I know somebody within his camp and we have a, a really good relationship. And but no, I technically did not speak to Iverson on, you know, on the record for this story. But I actually did see Iverson the next day, the embassy suites in Hampton, Virginia. He was just chilling in the lobby like with with his crew and. 
So I was waiting for my Uber to come pick me up the next day. But my uh, my colleague and somebody that Iverson is very, very fond of, Mark Spears, I was texting him. He was like, yo, just go up and talk to him. Go up and talk to him. Like, And I was like, all right, cool. I have no problem doing that. But also, you know, I, I want to be respectful of his space and his privacy as well. So when I went to speak to him, I actually got a phone call and I couldn't do it at that point in time. So I went back to sit down and he walked back towards my direction. And I just basically spoke to him like, hey, Chuck, Justin Tinsley, Mark Spears, mutual friend. He was like, oh, yeah, I saw you yesterday at the thing. He was like, yo, thank you for coming to cover that. He said, it means a lot to me. He was like, I know I ain't speak to you, but he he said, sometimes I just don't really be feeling like talking. I was like, look, I get it. I understand. But he was like, yo, thank you for coming to cover that. And uh, he was like, yo, get back home safe. And it means a lot that you came down here for such a like personal moment for me. And I was, that was pretty much the gist of the conversation. And I was like, all right, well, I knew he appreciated it. You said you saw him and you said, you want, I want to be respectful of his space and privacy. And I would say that is counterintuitive to my approach to journalism, which is generally like, I'm going to go talk to the guy. Now, yeah. I may be nervous about it. I may not enjoy it. I may not be happy about it. I may anticipate getting blown off, but I feel like compelled that respectful of space and privacy has not always meant that, that much to me in my career for good and bad. <laughs> no, I get it. Is your first instinct to sort of feel it out before going up? I, I, I kind of judge it on a case-by-case basis, but for something like this with Iverson, one, my story was already submitted. You know what I mean? I granted now if I could have got him on the record, we could have pushed the story back a little bit and I could have got quotes, but I wasn't expecting to get anything. I just wanted to basically introduce myself. And because Mark Spears was telling me like, yeah, I've already told him that you're there. Like he's expecting to see you. And so like when I went up to him the first time he was, he was actually eating lunch and he, he looked like he was in a meeting. And so I was like, all right, if he's talking to somebody, I, obviously I don't want to be rude and interrupt the conversation. But one of his people were around him and he was like, everything good? I'm like, yeah, you know, I just wanted to introduce myself to Chuck. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Mark Spears. And he was like, oh, yeah, I know who Mark is. He said, but yo, come back a little bit later. Um, then you can talk to him. I'm like, all right, cool. So I came back maybe like 15 minutes later. He wasn't there. And so I'm, I'm sitting in the front of the lobby still waiting. And so when he walked by me again, I'm like, all right, this is the chance to speak to him, even if it's just to introduce myself and I don't have any questions for him, like on the record. And that's when I did. And that's when, you know, we we spoke. I don't want to make it seem like the conversation was, you know, five minutes or anything like that. The conversation may have been 15, 20 seconds at the absolute most, because it, it, he he was walking somewhere with the intention to go. I don't know where he was going. But you could tell he was in a rush, but he made, you know, that little bit of time for me. And, that, and that's what that was. If I'm like in an arena, like in the in the tunnel trying to speak to a player, like, yeah, I will definitely go up and just be like, hey, look, I'm so and so from from this publication working on this story. You got You got a few minutes to speak. But if 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 it's somewhere where I feel like they're somewhat I grant how private can you be in a hotel lobby? But, you know, like if you're talking to somebody and it looks like you're engaged in like a serious conversation, I will fall back. I will give you that space. It's worked for me. More often than not in my career, Jeff, is like if you give people like their personal space when you, when you think they need it, they'll be more willing to, at least for me, this is just for me. They, they've been more willing to talk both on and off the record on whatever it is that that I'm working on. So I, it's a case by case basis. But with Iverson, it was like, all right, this is the third time I got to say something to him because I, 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 I won't have many more opportunities in front of me. It never hurts to treat people as human beings. As human beings. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I try to. 
I wrote about you. I did a thing on my uh, my Substack recently where I, mm-hmm. uh, I I had my my favorite writers basically of the year. And I, I, I saw that I had you on there, and I wrote um. So I wrote about you. I, I'm not big into quoting myself. I, there's a reason here. I said, no, um, please. I'm going to say something and I hope people understand what I mean. Back in the late 90s, when I was one of an ocean of white male writers at Sports Illustrated, the magazine desperately needed scribes like Tinsley. First, because he's oozing talent. Second, because he has his fingers on the pulse of sports and culture, music and art, and how they all mesh. I remember when we had Jerome Bettis on the cover and the editors felt bold enough to use the word fat, P-H-A-T, five years too late. Remember when we had a cover story on the vanishing white athlete? I remember an enraged with the Charles Sprewell skin tone toyed with. It's painful to think of, and it's why men and women like Justin are vital to this business's growth. And what really made me think of that was a piece you wow. wrote earlier this year about DMX, because I feel like this is a story that the headline was an entire generation owes DMX for his lesson in resilience. And it, and it appeared on what is basically a sports platform, the undefeated. And I feel like 10, 15, 20 years ago, it doesn't even appear in newspapers. There'd be a, a small obit for DMX in a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Maybe his hometown paper would have a big obit, but you wouldn't be reading a ton about DMX. Most white editors beyond Tupac and Eminem would have right. no idea who he is. DMX dies. Somehow you're moved to write about it. Why? Okay. So DMX to me, he he's one of those hip hop legends that, you know, for the last maybe decade of his career, you know, he wasn't the superstar that he was in the late night. I'd venture to say, it, you know, in sports, we think of like all time great years and seasons like, OK, well, Shaq in 2000 when he won the MVP, you know what I mean? Or Steph Curry's unanimous year or Tom Brady doing whatever, whatever the case may be, Serena in like 2012. What Think of any great athlete in the year and the run they had. DMX had arguably the greatest year in hip hop in 1998. He dropped two Billboard number one albums, not just like top rap album in the country. This is the number one album in the country when, you know, Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and NSYNC and, you know, all these people are basically running amok on the charts. Like this guy dropped two albums at a point in time in my life where hip hop was becoming even more pivotal to just you know, how I looked at the world, how I understood the world and just in terms of art and expression. And DMX was he was like, you know, no disrespect to Jay-Z, who was a bona fide star by 1998. But DMX was a mega star at that point. And he was like the first mega star in the post Tupac and Biggie world. Right. And so that's what I remember. And his music, it was fun party, too, but it was it also had a very transparent and introspective and humanistic element to it. And so like DMX. From I would venture to say from 98 to 2001 made such great music that was just impossible to replicate. And, you know, he he spoke to the insecurities and the vulnerabilities of so many people, not just people who grew up, you know, in, in the hood or anything of that nature. But his music spoke to people on a very spiritual level that, you know, you always wanted to keep up with DMX when you heard about his troubles, when you heard about his battles with addiction, when you heard about you know, his financial shortcomings and things of that nature. He was just always one of those artists that you held a personal connection to because he reminded you of a certain point in time in your life when, you know, I was around 13, 14 at that point. You always have a soft spot in your heart for somebody who defines a certain point in your life. DMX did a really good interview earlier this year on this YouTube series with the rapper Noriega and DJ EFN. It's called Drink Chant. Now, the whole point of the the interview series is they interview people. And for the most part, they basically take shots throughout the interview. So 
as the interview goes on, people progressively get more and more willing to talk. But DMX, he was sober at that point in time. This was maybe two months before he died. And he talked about, you know, his life, his career and how happy he was to be at this space. He was working on a new album. Uh, he was talking about his kids and how proud he was of all of his kids and just how like he had survived so much over the course of his life. And he felt like he was in such a great space. Now, you know, of course, he ended up the coroner's report. Uh, uh, it proved that, you know, he, he died of, of an overdose. So when he died, I felt like, man, this dude taught us so much about like not, you know, not letting your your whatever pitfalls you experience define you. Now, of course, you know, he lost his life in an unfortunate manner, but like his music and his his interviews and just the way he tried to help people through the art that, that he felt that he was blessed with. I felt like that was that was worthy enough to show that, like, regardless of how his life ended, how he lived his life and what he tried to overcome, that's a lesson for all of us because we're all going to hit those pitfalls. We're all going to hit those bumps in the road. And DMX was, as I said in the story, a lesson on resilience. I felt like I owed it to not just DMX, but my generation's connection to him. You wrote, uh, DMX in one way or another is a portal into our own lives or many of our, li- our family's darkest secrets. That's why DMX matters to the depths that he does. In so many ways, he is us. We've lived with his music while witnessing loved ones or even ourselves battle demons. When you're writing, are you writing for a black audience? Um, yeah, I, I like to think I do. But also, like when I write something like that, I'm really writing for myself and my family. Like I look at my family and our history and different members of, of my family. I, I have a, an older cousin, you know, just out of respect, I, I won't say her name, but she was somebody that, you know, I grew up with. She was about 15, 20 years older than me, but she was somebody who took care of me when I was younger. And um, she, she went through some trials and tribulations in life as to where, you know, she got heavily, heavily addicted to drugs, like hard drugs, like crack and, you know, heroin and things of that nature. And I saw how it impacted different parts of our family. I saw how there would be sometimes years at a time where I, I just wouldn't hear from her and I wouldn't know if she was alive or dead. And now, you know, I'm on, we're friends on Facebook and she, you know, she's, she's got a new job. She's when you're a react, when you're a recovering addict, you're still an addict. Like you're still one, one snap of the finger away from going back into the lifestyle that you wanted to leave. And, and I saw that in DMX as well. So like, when I saw what happened to DMX, yeah, of course, you know, I'm, I'm writing for the audience who was fans of his, who, you know, largely, you know, African-American audience, but he, that wasn't his entire fan base. But I was really writing about DMX because I saw so much uh, of my cousin in there. She had to fight demons that I will never know the true extent to because, you know, she had to fight them on her own. She had to deal with them on her own. I saw her lose her. And lose custody of her kids for a little bit, lose connection, you know, with their children for for a while and, you know, lose her mom to to cancer. And she had already lost her dad to a heart attack like years earlier. So, like, when I hear DMX rap about, you know, rap in the song Slipping, which is one of his most powerful songs ever, I hear the pain. I hear the vulnerability, but I hear the transparency. And I'm like, you know, my cousin didn't go through exactly what DMX did, A, B, C, and D, but she experienced her own harsh setback, setbacks and how that impacted not just her, but, you know, people around her and her family. So when I write about somebody like DMX, it's, it's really personal because 
in one way or another, we all know what DMX. You uh, you wrote a piece earlier this year touching on the Dave Chappelle. Sort of oh, yeah, yeah. I just want to read what you wrote at the beginning. You wrote that. They, yeah. they say that pride comes before the fall, but it's jealousy that more times than not leads to war. And that's currently what Dave Chappelle finds himself in. Early on in The Closer, the legendary comedian's final Netflix stand-up, Chappelle brings up the baby and how the rapper flew way too close to the sun with his anti-gay tirade at Rolling Loud. And the funny thing is right now, at this moment, first paragraph, you don't really know where Justin's going to go here. Like, mm-hmm. you might defend Chappelle. You might not. You don't know, right? Chappelle yeah. says society cared more about what was said to the LBGTQ community rather than what was done to a black man. It's true that DaBaby in 2018 shot and killed a 19-year-old man at North Carolina Walmart. Yet what Chappelle failed to mention was that DaBaby has always claimed it was self-defense. The victim's family refutes that. But Chappelle took it a step further. Quote, I'm jealous. I'm not the only black person that feels this way, he said. We blacks, we look at the gay community and we go, God damn it. Look how well that movement is going. And we've been trapped in this predicament for hundreds of years. How the fuck are you making that kind of progress? The flaw here is that despite Chappelle claiming he's talking to the white community, he failed to offer any context to race and sexuality, in particular, how the black community is grappling with acceptance. And then you kind of slam the guy. Like, you kind of like... Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's fascinating. A lot of people supported Chappelle. A lot of people are like, right on. I hear exactly what this guy's saying. He's being persecuted by blah, blah, blah society, blah, blah, blah. Um, did you watch Chappelle and think this is bullshit? I'm going to, I'm, this isn't cool. Jeff, I, I, I lied to, I bullshit you not, man. Like my wife and I, we're huge Chappelle fans. Like, I, I, I don't know how, especially for like, we're, you know, you know, young black people in our, in our mid thirties. Like, I don't know how you could not be a huge Chappelle fan at this point. Cause he soundtracked so much of our lives. Like for me, what Richard Pryor was to, my my grandfather and my my uncle who passed away in 1999 what he was to to their generations i truly felt like and, and to and to an extent still feel that like dave chappelle soundtracked my generation to that high level of quality not even just the chappelle show i'm not even just talking about that that was great of course but just throughout the course of his work so when we sat down i'd already I was already on on edge a little bit because if you watch this last couple of standups, he's been hammering home this notion about the LGBTQ community. He's made it a point of emphasis to really like rail on them. Now, look, I love offensive comedy. I grew up on it. I understand it. But it was it was feeling like there was less comedy behind it than more um, than more venom. You know, like I, that's what it felt like. So when we sat down to watch this, I'm like, all right. I'm going to give it a fair shake. I'm going to see where it goes. This is his last one. I hope Dave Chappelle goes out with a bang. I mean, I guess he did kind of go out with a bang in more ways than one, but I was hoping for more of the positive variety, you know? So we sat down and watched it. And about 15 minutes into it, she looked at me and I looked at her and she was just like, yo, this isn't funny. And I'm like, I think I can count on one hand the number of times I've laughed and still have fingers left over. And so we got to the end of it and I was like, yo, that's, that wasn't funny. That it made me uncomfortable at times. And so I was like, okay, you know what? They want me to write about this and I'll write about it, but let me go back and rewatch it just to make sure I, I heard everything that he said and understood, you know, the context for everything. I still felt the same. Honestly, I felt more of a, like, yeah, I got a call call Dave out on this than I did the first time. And it was just, look, 
I felt like, and I say it in the piece, I felt like he was being unfair to African-American members of the LGBTQ community. Because, you know, if you feel like, oh, this community has made so much more progress than the black community in the last 50 years, then what about, you know, the black men and women who are part of this community? Do you take them out of the black community and just put them in this? Because that's not fair because they live in both worlds. And I felt like he did such a disservice to them with that, because it's like if you're if you're black and you're gay, how do you come away from that? Right. You're black and you're trans. How do you come away from that? You're black and you're queer. How do you come away from that? Like and it, it just because you hold somebody accountable for something does not mean you hate them, does not mean you hope their career you know, burns out and, and we never hear from them again. No, I love Dave Chappelle. I've written tons of articles on Dave Chappelle over the course of my career while I praised this guy. The, the, the one time, and honestly, I probably should have done it, done it even before this special, but, but, but the one time I really hold this dude, you know, this dude's feet to the fire on something that I don't feel like is okay, now it's like, oh, I'm a hater. Like when the Undefeated posted this on, on Instagram and they posted like some screenshots of my article, Man, so my my wife and I we were at a at a at a local bar just at a happy hour, and she saw it before I did. She was like, "Oh my god, Justin! Like they're killing you in these comments." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And so I saw it, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, I knew this." Like when you talk about somebody like Dave Chappelle, and then when you add the conversation of LGBTQ and 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 you know racial rights and you know gay rights, it's 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 basically an elixir for the worst of the worst migrating to one comment section and saying whatever they did. And I'm like, look, Jay, baby, you cannot read the comments. Cause if you read the comments, like your night is going to be ruined. And it is 632 at this point. We got a long time before we go back in. I hold Dave Chappelle to a higher, to a much higher standard than what he's holding himself at right now, because I've seen him do some really phenomenal work in because he operates in a space, especially under race and like these type of issues that he can talk about them in ways that, you know, you know, traditional activists can't. He can talk about them in ways that Lord knows we're not going to even allow politicians to talk about this because Lord knows we know they can't do that. But, you know, he he holds such a special and powerful platform. And I feel like he's at, at this point in time in 2021. He's just using it in in all the wrong ways. And it was just it was it was upsetting for for me being such a big fan of the guy. I just want to say your your description of you watching it with your wife reminded me of so I'm about a decade older than you. And Mm -hmm. my generation, I would say Eddie Murphy was a Dave Chappelle. Like I lived and died with Eddie Murphy. Probably Eddie Murphy and Seinfeld were like the two big people live with. For sure. I I was probably 14 years old and I convinced my my dad to take me to see Eddie Murphy, (laughs) Eddie Murphy Raw. Oh God. Movie theater. (laughs) And I'm sitting there with Stanley Perlman, CPA, and Eddie Murphy just starts. And oh. I'm like shrinking in my seat. I'm like oh. next to my dad thinking this is the worst. I What the hell is going oh, on? God. Yeah, oh, God. What, so hold on, hold on. Time out. Let me ask you a question. What did your dad say about it? My dad was kind of quiet. And at the end, he was like, did you find that funny? And the truth of the matter is, Eddie Murphy Rob wasn't actually that funny. Like Delirious which you couldn't do now. I don't know if you ever yeah. heard of Murphy Delirious. You couldn't oh, yeah, them. I know. I'm quite familiar with both. You couldn't tell 90% of those jokes now with good reason. Oh, no. At the time, it was ridiculously funny, and it was one of the yeah. best stand-ups of all time. Absolutely. And Raw was a kind of a drop-off, but it was also like, I mean, 
you know, my dad, like it was the, the wrong audience, hundred percent. I mean, you honestly just said it right there. Like 90% of those jokes, you can't tell now. When I go back and look at it, yeah, I, I do laugh, but I understand that like in night, the world was a lot different in 1983 when I oh, believe yeah. that's when Delirious came. Yeah. It was Delirious then Raw, right? Yes. Delirious yeah. is the orange suit. Raw is the purple suit. Okay. Yes. So, and Eddie Murphy had said himself, he said it in an interview, I believe earlier this year, he was like, look, man, like I'm damn near 60 years old at this point. He was like, there's no way I would tell these jokes in anymore nowadays. He was like, I, I look at some of the jokes I told in the past and I, I cringe at them. And like, that's all the accountability that you need in certain situations, man. Like, look, I was at a different space in my life. Look, there, there are point in times where if I think back to just like joking sessions that I may have had with friends back in college while we're like trading shots at a, like a house party, there's certain things that I probably said when I was 20, 21, 22 years old that I would never say as a 35 year old. I would never say that. And it's just it's a product of growing up and it's a product of being accountable. You can't just be like, oh, well, freedom of speech. I can say whatever I want because Lord knows that shit has gotten us into honestly the predicament that we're in now as a society. Like you can't just say whatever you want and just hide behind the guise of freedom of speech because you, you have to grow and you have to hold yourself accountable and society has to hold you accountable in order for everything around us to grow, which is why society really hasn't grown much. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, you're saying this and Four days ago, Donald Trump is at game five of the World Series doing the tomahawk chop oh, and the right God. is raising him left and right. And I do feel like there really is this immense backlash against everything you just said, which mm -hmm. is I should be able to say whatever the hell I want. It's my it's a free country. The left is trying to trample on my rights, blah, 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 blah. And there's a real movement against exactly what you and I probably agree with. Them. Yeah, I had a, had a conversation uh, a couple of years ago, and I was talking with a friend of mine who who is gay. And, you know, there were I used to say certain things like, yo, like, man, that's gay. You know, like I, I would say that. And, you know, I didn't mean it in a derogatory term for anybody who is a part of that community. But, you know, my friend pulled me to the side and was like, yo, you have to stop saying that. Like, most people probably won't tell you because even a decade ago, society wasn't really ready for those type of conversations. They was like, yo, that's actually disrespectful to somebody like me who is gay. And, and for you to sit here and be like, yo, that's gay when you're trying to demean um, a movie or, you know, something that you don't like. You're basically saying that's gay. So I don't like it. So what about me? Who is gay? You know, that's what my friend said to me. And the lesson I took from all of that is, if somebody who is a part of a group that is being offended by something, you don't get to tell them what they should and should not be offended by. It's, it's as simple as that. And when that lesson clicked in my head, I'm like, yo, all right, cool. Like, don't say it anymore. I won't say it. Uh, and, you know, I apologize. And he was like, yo, it's not about apologizing. This is about, well, I accept your apology. But it's about understanding and moving that forward and telling the next person. And it's just like, you know, being black in this country, like, you know, yo, don't wear blackface. It's offensive. Like, well, why not? It's just a Halloween costume. I should be able to do what I want. Like, no, like if a Native American sits here and tells you don't do the tomahawk chop, you know, at a game because, you know, you have majority white people dressing up in red face and dressing up as 
Indians and doing the tomahawk chop, that is like disrespectful to our culture. Like if somebody tells you, if somebody who was actually a part of the culture who you're trying to mimic tells you it's offensive, just don't do it. This is how you break it down. Simply. I can tell a Jewish joke. You can't. You can tell a black joke. I can't. That's it. It's not that complicated. You can use the N word if you want. I can't. I can make some Jewish slur to a friend who's Jewish as a joke. You can't. A gay person can make a gay joke. You can't. Why is this complicated? I don't I don't get it. Use the example you just said. You can make a Jewish joke, but I can't. That does not impact the rest of my day or my life. Oh, my God, I can't make Jewish jokes. What am I ever going to write about now? Right. Like my career is done. If your career and, and this is something I'm glad I just said that the comedian Cat Williams, who I'm a, actually a big fan of, he spoke about it wasn't it wasn't about Chappelle. And I actually I said I, I mentioned it in the Chappelle piece that I wrote. But he was like, look, if your style of comedy is based off being just not even trying to be funny, but like beating down on another person and you can't understand how that's offensive and you can't understand how that impacts somebody else, then maybe this ain't for you anymore. Time should not have to evolve or devolve with your art. Your art should have to evolve with time. So like, if I could tell a gay joke back in 1992 and society is telling me in 2021, like, yo, you need to grow up. You need to understand like, this isn't cool anymore. I can't fight on the trope of, well, 30 years ago, I could say that, well, you know what? 30 years ago, the world was a lot different. And if you're and if your reluctance to evolve comes to define who you are, that speaks volumes about the quality of your character and just like what your intention is for your art. And if your intention for your art is to demean, you know, ridicule people. Look, again, you can still be offensive. Like 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 Cat Williams said, nobody ever took away the, the, the term dirty bitch. You know, like you can still say that. That's fine. But if somebody tells you you can't say this slur anymore, you can't say this racial epitaph, just don't say it. Find another word. Find another situation. It could all be so simple. It feels so simple. But we're, we're also dealing with simple times, too, um, and very simple people. You have a book coming out next May. Yes. Uh, it was yes. all a dream. Biggie and the world that made him. Biggie is right in the heart of my hip hop sort of love and generation. And my dream book is a Tupac biography. I love Tupac. He's my favorite artist. He's my favorite hip hop artist, obviously. His work meant a ton to me. When he died, I was devastated, blah, 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 blah. Yep. Okay. I've had people say to me, you know what, Jeff, you're a, you're, you're a white sports writer. Are you the guy to write a Tupac book, right? Mm-hmm. And I always think, I love Tupac's music and I, I'm fascinated by him and I would dig and I would you know knock on doors and blah, 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 blah. Is that a fair argument? I am not the guy to write a Tupac biography. Is there a point to that? I mean, serious. I'm not even, I'm not looking for you yeah. to say, no, you should write it. I'm actually interested. Like, can someone make the point? A Tupac book comes out by Jeff Perlman. And they're like, Jeff Perlman, why is this guy, is this a guy to be writing a book about this? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you would probably get those looks like it's Jeff Perlman, the guy to write a Tupac book. But like, I understand, like, if you're, if you're going to do it, and I know you will, because obviously I've been reading your work for for years and that you do phenomenal work. And I know the depths of your research and I know you be willing to talk to anybody under damn near any circumstance. So I understand like if you wrote a Jeff, if Jeff Perlman wrote a Tupac book, I'd be like, you know, this ain't really, you know, the wheelhouse that I've come to understand who he is, but you know, I'm going to give you a shot. Now, generally speaking from, you know, the uh, general public outside looking in, they're probably, 
going to look at it in a certain way because hip hop is such a it's such an insular genre and it's one that's really protective of itself. Now, granted, hip hop has its flaws. Don't get it twisted. I could go all day about the flaws that hip hop has, but it's also very protective of itself. And it's just like, oh, man, like, you know, what's this white guy going to tell me about Tupac that I don't know? Um, but that that's just up to one, you having the gall to write it and two, people giving giving the book a shot from where it is. Um, I think if you got the right people to talk on the record, you did the research that you were supposed And I'm trying to think, like, who could you? I mean, because there's so many people that were directly associated with Tupac who are unfortunately who are no longer here. I mean, serious about this. Like you get every yearbook that guy appeared in. Like he was yeah. at the Baltimore Performing School of the Arts. Okay. Yeah. I get that yearbook. And I yeah. go, April Adams, Bob Beeman, blah, blah, blah. And I just call everybody. And you just call yeah. everybody. And you you get people to speak on the record about Tupac who have never spoken before. People will read the book, regardless of what you know you look like, your background, whatever. Like they're gonna be some side eyes. We like, what's this white guy writing about Tupac? But it's not like now, one of my one of my really good friends in the industry, an incredible writer, and he he's just been involved in in hip hop for so long that it's just like nobody bats an eye. My man um, Rob Kenner, who actually um, he was he was the editor on the original Biggie biography, Unbelievable, that Chael Hadari Coker wrote back in two thousand and three, and he he worked for Vibe for so many years, and he actually published the Nipsey Hussle biography, The Marathon Don't Stop, that came out earlier this year. Nobody batted an eye because this is Rob. Like he's been involved in this culture for over a quarter century at this point. And we know like this dude is going to there. There's no I hate using this word because I feel like this word is thrown around a lot. There's no agenda with this guy. Like he just wants to tell the story. And that's 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 all you've ever been, you know. So but yeah, if you you start getting people that knew Tupac when he was at the Baltimore Performance School for the Arts, you you knew you, you interviewed the guy who ran the rec center in Marin City that allowed two Tupac to jump on the mic for the first time. Hell, you go to fucking California and get Suge Knight to talk on the record again because I mean, we're we're never going to see Suge Knight on the outside again. No. You know, it, it, it's it's all about the stories that you can tell, and honestly, just the the care and respect and nuance that you give the topic of Tupac because he's such a I don't even think fascinating is the word to describe that guy. Like he's such an intricate and he might be the most complex person. It damn sure just celebrity. You know, he might just be the of, of my lifetime of, of my lifetime. He is the most complex. And so I, I won't say that you're the wrong guy to do it, but I just say like, that's a, that's a tall task to take on. For me, he's the most influential hip hop artist of my, of my lifetime. Yeah. I, I look, I'm, I'm the same way. Uh, you know, I grew up like if you call my mom right now, her ringtone is still Dear Mama. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. Mine yeah, is exactly. um, Thug's Mansion, but the uh, with, oh, one with the, uh, the acoustic one. one? With, uh, yeah. The Nas. one with, with Nas. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah no, I, I, I love the I love the the acoustic version, man. It, it just it just brings a different element of soul into the record. And Tupac's voice and his, his you know, Tupac embodied so much. He embodied like the the history of, you know, African-Americans in this country, especially, you know, he was born, he was essentially born into COINTELPRO. You know, his mother was a Black Panther. She spent the first eight months of her pregnancy locked up in jail because the whole Panther 21 case. Yeah. And so he was born, he was literally born into the struggle. And from the day he was born, Lassane Parrish Crooks, 
you know, that was his original birth name. But then, you know, his mother changed his name two weeks later to the name that we know now, Tupac Shakur. But like that, that guy's story, man, he he's there's such a such a Lazarus like aura around him. Like this dude, like he we saw him get knocked down so many times, but he was the first to get back up. Like this dude got shot in Las Vegas and the cop is holding him in his arm and the cop is asking him, like, who did this to you? And, and literally Tupac's last words to the cop are fuck you. Like he's like he's James Dean. Like like he he bought into this energy that was around him and he never broke character. Well, Justin, it's been great talking to you. Seriously, you have a very impressive bookshelf behind you. Praise to your wife. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Seriously. Yo, thank you so much for having me, man. I can't wait to come back. I want to thank today's guest, Justin Tinsley, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Justin on Twitter at Justin Tinsley and read his work at The Undefeated. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Sling and Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I don't make any money for doing this. I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.